0: Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk with one of our classmates, Lance Morrow, about the drama of money in America. He has written a new book titled God and Mammon. I'm joined by classmate Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, and George Jones, plus Radcliffe graduate Marcy Benstock is with us. George, good to see you. How are you? How was your week? I'm doing well. I'm in Oklahoma right now. You've
1: been burning a lot of gas, buddy. Yeah, he, well, he was there a, a couple of travel. weeks ago, right? A, well, a couple of months ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Jerry Secundi, how are you? How is your week? I'm doing fine. I'm uh, Lance. I'm in Pasadena, California, right outside of Los Angeles, and we have a pleasant day, and uh, I'm
1: doing just fine.
0: And uh, Mr. Easter, Fred Easter, how are you doing?
1: Doing great. Uh, My COVID-19 test came back negative. Oh, good. Uh, The doctor says I'm doing fine for somebody as old and ugly as I am. Um, Did you have to take a test routinely? No. um, I I mentioned something about tasting things Ah. at a meeting with my doctor, oncologist, and that triggered them into panic. Oh, God, go take a test.
2: <laughs> you get because away.
1: one of the symptoms of the virus is that you lose your sense of taste. I yeah. never lost my sense of taste, I just lost the taste for some things. Oh, but anyhow, I went and took the test as they asked, and it came back negative. And so,
0: well, that's great, right? And John, how about you? How are you doing?
1: Fine, the uh, Michigan militia didn't kidnap me or the governor, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're only about 30, 30 to 40 minutes up the road, straight up the yeah. road here.
0: Hey, well, our guest today is Lance Morrow, and Lance, t- uh, tell us about your life a little bit, then we'll get into your book, which you're excited about.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, it's great to be here, great to see you again, and see John and everybody else. Um so I'm living on the farm, which you've seen um, uh, some years ago uh, up in Columbia County. And uh, I'm doing, uh, working on, trying to work on books of, of essays, basically. And uh, I do occasional pieces for the Wall Street Journal and City Journal and other uh, other publications. And uh, so I'm just, uh, for the last six months, I've just been hiding out up here on the farm and uh my wife and i and <clears throat> have, we haven't been seeing anybody really and uh you know we get our groceries by picking them up in the parking lot and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but uh, actually it's out if you got to be locked down it's a nice place to be locked down i mean it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a beautiful day today and it's uh, it's nice to have plenty of, you know there's nothing but coyotes and raccoons and uh, squirrels and the stuff out here, so so it's a it's fun.
0: Where did you spend most of your career? You were in, the, in I I the was time
2: right? I was Time Magazine for for many many years. I went to Time in 1965 as a writer in New York, and I stayed there for many many years. It was a really good job. I, I you know I was uh, doing essays and cover stories and stuff like that. And I got out on the road periodically, and you know, got to travel uh, to the Middle East and Africa and so on. So I had a good time, and uh, I left there in uh, 2005, and I went to um, Boston University to become a professor. Um, uh, they had a thing called the University Professors uh, Program there, and I was there for a few years. But now I'm just uh, freelance writing and uh, and doing books.
0: Well, listen, tell us about the book and start with the title. I mean, it sounds, it sounds and when's it coming out? November twenty
2: fourth uh, or something? Yeah, something like that. They pushed it back a little, but it's it's around Thanksgiving. But it's called uh, God and Mammon: Chronicles of American Money. And I should I should say that uh, of all the people to write about money, I am the last guy in the world that should be writing about money. Well, why? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. I, at Harvard, I I took egg One because I had to. I mean, I needed a social science course, and uh, and I stupid me, I thought it would be harmless. And I took it, and the guy took pity on me and gave me a C minus. But he could have—he could have flunked me. I mean, right. I, I didn't—I did not understand one syllable. I don't know why, but economics is
0: <laughs>
2: uh, economics is just totally, absolutely beyond me. And I didn't—I didn't understand the syllable. So, this is a cagey book in that. I I I'm talking about I say right up front that what I'm talking about is more of the psychology of money or the culture of money or even the emotions of money as they are expressed in various um, American lives. It's uh, it's an it's basically an essay book. It's I'm, I'm we're trying to work on a series of essays about various aspects of American life. And this one is a. Uh, is the first of that, of that series. But uh, it's not, I don't, I don't propose any formal theory of anything. I'm not proposing a monetary theory of anything, or uh, I just look at um, various historical figures, including uh, Thomas Jefferson, and actually, and also literary figures. But I, I look at Thomas Jefferson and the Hemmings family and uh jefferson's um financial situation you know he died broke and he, yeah. they had to auction off the plantation and and uh and uh all of that and then i, I talk about um, booker t washington and and w.e.b du bois and their um different their controversy and the different approaches and so on and then that whole subject and um uh, I talk about the uh, the Brown brothers of Providence, Rhode Island. Who, uh, uh, you know, they they were the family that Brown University was named after. And uh, Moses Brown was a very very fervent abolitionist, and John Brown, his brother, was a, uh, a sometimes slave trader, and they they had years and years of of. Uh, of argument and controversy and so on, but they never formally broke with one another. But they're they're an interesting case study of the relationship of money to matters of race and the slave trade and slavery and all of that. And uh, then I go on and talk about um, Horatio Alger and different models. Basically, it's about different models of American relationship to money my the opening premise of the thing is that money is the american thing that it's the common denominator it's the common language it's the founding premise of the of the country and that uh, a country as diverse and as improvised and so on uh, how do you judge anybody well you know settle for money just start with money and um uh, and it's it's about money as a both of a relatively solid thing in one dimension, but then as a completely crazy um, emotional, unreliable insubstantial thing in another dimension, uh, which one sees of course in you know, moments of uh, market crashes in two thousand and eight or nineteen twenty nine, and so on. So uh, that's basically it. It's kind of a literary book. It's not. It's not really controversial. I don't think. Um, I, I don't think it would be arouse much controversy. But mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's it's an interest. I find money a very interesting subject. Even how did though, you get the
0: title? Uh,
2: uh, well, you know from. With well, the Gospel according to Saint, Ma- Saint, Ma- Saint Matthew, is it that uh, you, you cannot serve both God and Mammon? You know, and, and my premise is that in America, America is a, is a full partnership between God and Mammon, and that uh, it's there's a lot about religion in the book because because the the religion is an underlying premise of so much in American. You know history and life and so on, and it's a uh, the language, the language of religion and the language of money, and the the implications of the two of them get all interwoven. I mean, starting with you know the Protestant ethic and the um, the uh, Calvinist uh, approach to uh, to material things. I mean, uh, I, I quote early on. I quote Cotton Mather. Uh, saying, uh, and this is in 1702, uh, when he was beginning to get very nervous that the original religious fervor of the Massachusetts settlement was being lost in favor of materialism and money-making and so on. And so he said that in order to get to heaven, you you row to heaven with two oars, you have the oar of your material calling and the oar of your spiritual calling. And if you row with, if you pull with both oars, you will get to heaven. But if you pull on only one oar, you'll just go in circles and you won't go anywhere. <laughs> so that was, his, that was his idea of the relationship between money and, uh, and religion, the, the spiritual and material. And I try to trace in the book. I I talk about that constant effort on the part of certain kinds of American money to be virtuous, and certain certain kinds of American power to like like to think of itself as virtuous. And how do we how do we how can we square? These pretensions to virtue, these ideas of American virtue—how do we square that with, you know, the, the, the materialism, venality, uh, uh, slavery—you uh, know, all kinds of all kinds of things along that line?
1: Hey, Lance, how did Thomas yeah. Jefferson happen to be I'm, broken? was he really was he really really severely broke when he died? And you bet he was,
2: he to... and. It, Well, it was interesting.
1: He, his wife who died,
2: who had died in, uh, I believe, 1782, his wife Martha brought with her into the marriage her father's debts. He was a very successful um, business, you know, a, a plantation owner and all that. But he, those guys, because of the nature of their business, were very often carrying very heavy debts. And this guy was carrying a lot of debt. And that debt went with his daughter into Mm. the marriage with Jefferson. So Jefferson was a very extravagant man himself. He spent a lot on, he liked his French wines and, and rare books and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so he spent a lot of money and didn't, Pay particular attention because, as I, as I say, debt was a way of life with these people. They 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 could run up tremendous debts and go on for years carrying them. But when he when he finally died, uh, the he was he was busted and he he just he had to sell everything. They had a, a big big sale, and uh, they eventually sold Monticello. To a uh, businessman from um, Charlottesville, and mm-hmm. uh, he he uh, eventually tried to raise silkworms there, and you know destroyed a lot of Jefferson's prize, agricultural, you know, mm-hmm. botanical specimens and so on. Uh, but uh, he he was really just totally busted. Wow. And uh, Sally Hemings went and living lived in Charlottesville uh, with uh, other members of her family, and uh, and they they were okay. I mean, they were, but uh, but he was. But it it was an interesting. A lot of the theme of the book has to do with success and failure.
0: Lance, this is Jerry. Just out of curiosity, how do Americans in their pursuit of money compared to say the Scandinavians? other countries
2: are we unusual in our pursuit there's a distinct quality in the american attitude toward money i think which is somewhat different i mean not, not always but it, there is there's a difference as i go through these various stories it was always clear to me that there was a sort of a bright line there was a bright red line that would go through and um uh, it had a distinctive American quality about it.
0: Was it different when we were at college, though? I mean, was it, wasn't it was it different back in the, you know, 59, 60s?
1: No. Tocqueville yeah. has a quote where he says, the difference between a Frenchman and an American is that an American standing on the corner, watching someone drive by in a Cadillac, say, yeah. dreams yeah. of the day he will have a Cadillac to drive by to drive in a frenchman in the same situation dreams of the day he can make that son of a bitch get out and walk like him
0: <laughs> lance uh, you know i wonder going back to our graduates at least i don't know whether some of us were just naive or idealistic but you know i went off to the peace corps and
2: uh-huh.
0: i was making 75 dollars a month so right. i was not exactly in the pursuit of money and i was not alone there were a number of our classmates that did that, that wanted to give back at that point in time. So yeah. money was not the end-all and be-all for a number of us right. in right. that age of our lives. Right. You know the significant well,
1: difference, I've, I think, between now and, and then is the frequency and the ease with which it's possible to create instant millionaires now. I mean, look
0: at somebody, for example, like Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for this, yeah. who yeah.
2: signed a half-a-million-dollar yeah. contract when I, when I went to work for the Washington star in 1963, they were paying me, uh, $42 a week. And, uh, then when I went to work for time of a year later, they didn't want to spoil me. They had, they had plenty of, <laughs> they had, they had loads of money. So they were paying me a really, I think they were paying me, uh, $7,500 a year. And, uh, you know but so it was a when i think about that I try, I try to remember how i made it by on that kind of money but uh, it, it certainly in my mind the um the scale was was very different in in that time than from what it is now i mean the 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 idea of salaries and values and so on but uh, it it goes up and down. It's it's a very uh, it's a very money is such a uh, fluid and uh, is a strange. It has I says as I say it has a certain solidity if you look at it in a uh, you try to look at it as a kind of uh, accountant, but it it also has a uh, shape shifting quality and a uh, and an insubstantiality which is which is very interesting and and. Uh, Sort of disconcerting,
0: but I mean, you—I would think it'll always be connected to the American dream,
2: as such. You bet, sure. I mean, that's—it's—it's it's, that's why I put it at, at the center of this book. Is—is it—it has so much to do. It's so central. And Tocqueville was saying the same thing that it's—that it's a subject that is really central to when you—if you're going to talk about this country, uh, he said. You know, you talk about religion, of course, because that's religion is such a, a theme in the, in the running through the country. But but money is the the most rela- its the lingua franca. It's you can you can talk about money, and you can get at almost any subject if you come in uh, thinking of money, and then then think of it. So not not all, but it's it's an important American subject, is what I'm saying.
0: So, Lance, how did how did money figure into the conflict between Du Bois and BTW?
2: Well, uh, Booker Washington was saying uh, basically. I mean, what an interesting, complicated character he was. But he was basically saying, in, in my reading of them of him, he was saying. Get the money. The money is the American thing. Get the money. Build a, 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 uh, a fortification of money. Build a middle class. You know, the, the, the whole thing about the Atlantic Compromise was to keep off, to, to keep away the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the really awful totalitarian aspects of the South until while building a, a fortification of money over and it would take a while, but build a middle class. And uh, so that was, I think he was really addressing a fundamental. Uh, he was in effect saying, look, the, the American thing is money and the way to succeed and survive is money It's it's do it first by trades by learning the basics of, of various trades and building an economy building a middle-class economy and so on and go from there and of course wb du bois uh said what he did which is a different approach and and uh uh i i i think i think booker washington had a point uh i mean i he uh you know, there was the, there was I, just, I go through the, the controversy between, between him and Du Bois and the, their, their uh, turning upon one another and so on. But uh, anyway, that the, the answer to your question is that I believe that Booker Washington was addressing it in, uh, as, as a way of uh, succeeding in a country, whose central theme and um, activity had to do with money. So that, that's the simplest way I can put it.
0: Do you think that, he, that in his view,
2: middle class was synonymous with working class? Yes, I do. I think I, Well, I think, that, I think that he was saying, start with working class. I mean, he was taking uh, uh, kids off the farm. He was saying, bring a toothbrush. You bring a toothbrush and you brush your teeth every day. And now I'm going to teach you to make bricks. Now I'm going to teach you how to farm. Now I'm going to teach you basic, basic, basics. And we're going to go from basic, basic, basics, and then working class and then middle class and do it methodically. And, uh, uh the, on that model and, uh, of course, W.EB. Du Bois had the, uh, the talented tenth idea and, uh, and was, came at it from a, from a very different attitude. But you know the, the Booker Washington grew up in Virginia. He was born in what was then Virginia and became West Virginia. and he was a walk working in the salt furnaces. and he nobody had to tell him about, living rough and, and having a hard time but uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, was born in Great Barrington and raised there uh, and in in a rather genteel setting and uh, was the first PhD that Harvard granted and uh, he had a he, he was an intellectual and when he first went to the south he went as a kind of tourist as a sort of intellectual tourist and he stayed with the uh, black families, the farm families and tenant farmers and so on. And, uh, but nobody had to tell uh, Booker Washington about this stuff. I mean, he knew it. He, that's the way he'd grown up. So uh, I think that Booker Washington had the solidity of that. I think his approach was, uh, had a lot to recommend it, even though the Du Bois uh, approach also made a lot of sense. And particularly, there was such disruption after World War One, after the, the uh, terrible race riots of 1919 and into 1920, and it, the, the picture changed and so on. So well,
0: I listen, you- Lance, how, how does something like the Universal... You know, UBI, uh, universal basic income, fit into your whole money
2: thing. I mean, I told you, Kent, that I got a C minus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you don't. <laughs> uh, all right. uh, uh, uh. You,
2: you start talking to me about it. <laughs> uh,
1: Lance. I was going to major in economics when I came to Harvard. Do you? And do so you I wonder... was in the same EC one class that you were. Yeah. You started <laughs> off.
2: He was, who was
1: your section man? Do you remember? No. I tried, re- <laughs> no. I tried to remember. But what I remember mean. is that they began talking. They stopped using words. And they began talking <laughs> sine delta and stuff. Yeah, right. And they yeah, decided right. maybe maybe history would be better for them.
2: <laughs> Listen, I'll, I'll tell you something. Uh, the words you didn't get signed, Delta. I couldn't get the words. I mean, I, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I have never felt like such an <laughs> imbecile in my life. But, uh, and on the, fi- on the final exam, I had a, a uh, section man named Wilkinson. I think his name. Is. He, was a, he was an English, a very dapper little Englishman, and uh, he couldn't. And this was sort of deliberate on my part he couldn't read my handwriting. So I wrote, you know, I filled blue book after blue book with this illegible. And he was such a nice guy that he invited me back and he said, look, you're gonna have to read this to me because I can't, I can't make it out. So, so, so naturally in the, in the process, in the process of reading the thing to him, I was correcting myself. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> <laughs> but he still gave me a C minus. <laughs> what do you
0: What do you write about greed in the book? Do you write?
2: Uh, I, I sort of take it for granted. It's uh, <laughs> America. Yeah. No, the point is the point is that the Americans to me the point is that there's always been there's this impulse to be virtuous, to to do good, to do well, and to do good. And the, the the tension between God and Mammon is precisely that tension. So you have greed on the Mammon side, which is very very strong, and is always there. But then you always you always have this uh, strain of uh a, a desire built into the american self image and all of that too somehow the Americans hate to think of themselves as evil or greedy or base or so on so but of course they are and of course they are sure uh so the question is uh how do you how does one square how does one square those those different forces within the partnership of God and Mammon, with, uh, granting that they're they're sitting at a partner's desk and they, uh, you know, the two of them are are in business together. So the question is, how do they get along? How do they get along? And and it's it goes back to what I said about Cotton Mather. Um, how do you pull on uh, the two oars at once in order to? Uh, you know, get to heaven or whatever. I I'm not sure that Americans are all that concerned about their own virtue anymore. I mean, I think a lot of it is just, although uh, oh, they are, but but it, it seems to me a little as as the religious um, energy becomes more diffuse. I I wonder if uh, if they bother to. Uh, to worry too much about their virtue.
1: That would be unfortunate because I, I, I think that even the hypocrisy is to an extent healthy, in that there's a, a push in people to at least say, Well, you know, I, I should or could or maybe I will be better. They have some notion that what they're well. doing is wrong. Because there, there are a lot of societies in which they don't even have that. Right, right, and I think
2: I think that's a really important point. I think that the the that feeling that they ought to there is an ought, mm-hmm. there's there's that there's an ought that runs through uh, the history too, and and I, I think you're absolutely right that that's a that can be a good influence and, and can keep people from going completely off the deep end.
0: The book is titled God and Mammon. The author is our classmate Lance Morrow. It comes out next month. And that's it for this episode number 12 of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.